I'm glad that you're here today. Uh, some of you are saying, man, this sermon better be good. <laughs> oh, me. Well, I can assure you the sermon, if it's not great, this is a great text that we're going to look at today. We're going to look at John chapter 1. Uh, if you're at Lessons and Carols a couple of years ago, I mean a couple of weeks ago, every year we do Lessons and Carols and it is a kind of a, a history of redemption. You read the scriptures beginning with the fall and you go through the Old Testament and you read appropriate carols. It's a great, uh, a, a great uh, uh, worship service. But the very last text is always John chapter 1 verses 1 through 18 because in this text we have uh, Christ being called the Logos uh, the Word, and, and the reason he's called the Word in this text is here is because it puts it all together. The glory of, of what the gospel is. Now, this is a hard text to preach on because it's so deep. And, uh, but I promise you that I'll keep it to an hour this morning since I know the kids are wanting to get back. No, uh, I want you to turn to the text. John chapter 1, and now we print it in our bulletin because we believe this is the Word of God. And uh, so, if you would, I want you to read along with me uh, the very Word of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and, and the Word was God. And He was in the beginning with God. And all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John, and he came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. The true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. And he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, the glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because He was before me. And from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who's at the Father's side. He has made him known. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful uh, for your scriptures. We thank you that you have revealed yourself to us uh, through them. But more importantly, you've revealed yourself through your son, born of a virgin 2,000 years ago, not only to teach us about you, 
but to provide the way into your presence. And so, Father, I pray for those who perhaps do not know you this morning, that for the first time they would hear what this text says and that they would see the truths of the gospel and and know the joy of being free from the bondage of ourselves and our inauthenticity. And Father, for us who are believers, we pray that you might once again cause this text to come alive in such a way that we would bow down once again and come to you as children and to look to Jesus Christ and not ourselves and not to one another. And so, Lord, we pray for your Spirit's presence today and we ask it in your name and for your sake. Amen. Um, if, if the world wants to get in on one uh, Christian holiday, it would be this one. Um, the world wants to get in on Christmas. It's a general rule. It doesn't like the exclusive claims of Christianity. Uh, in fact, I hesitated on, on using this title because it seems to be in the negative. Uh, but the world does want to get in on Christmas. And, and the reason is because uh, there are good things about Christmas that you can extract from Christmas. That uh, God is uh, bringing goodwill uh, on earth to men, giving hope in a world that seems to be out of control. It's time to be together with family. It's time to, um, time to give gifts. But one thing that you cannot do, as I've heard someone say, is you cannot extract the principles from the person. Christmas is Christ. It's about His incarnation. And everything rises and falls upon this person, not only in its teaching, but in, the very, in, in your very life, your understanding of who He is. Christmas never unites people, but always divides because of our understanding of who this person is and how we respond to who he is. Peter speaks of this when he's trying to explain Psalm 118, the the psalm that speaks of, of the chief cornerstone. And he says this, As you come to him, the living stone rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual household to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For the scripture says, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, And the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. A stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them the fall. They stumble because they disobeyed the message, which is also what we were destined for. The gospel always is calling us to decide on who he is. Now another place that we see this is is in Luke chapter 2 when Jesus is being brought by his parents to be consecrated to the temple. And Simeon, a godly man, prophesies about Jesus. 
And he says, this child is destined to call the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul. Simeon understood this. Simeon understood that this babe is no ordinary child. He is the very son of God. Born of a virgin. The eternal son taking upon himself a human nature and it will be the rise or fall of those who come into his presence to determine what they believe. Now our text is real simple. I don't have two points today in our text. But as we come to our text, and I come to these two points, here, here's what I want you to do this morning. Is what I want to, to ask you how your heart responds to what we're going to say. How do you respond to, to the text that we have just read? And that will determine whether you're looking at the gospel message, which is pretty much the same message over and over and over again, Christmas over and over again, and you're becoming more and more beholding of what this means. You get beyond the story and the facts of the story, and it begins to penetrate who you are. It begins to seep into your life where you're thinking about the incarnation, not only at Christmas time, but in January, in February. Begin to consider in July that Christ is God in the flesh for me, raised from the dead for me, and I'm united to him, and his life must seep into my life. Or whether you go, well, I'm glad I'm here with the family, and uh, okay, Jesus is the incarnate son of God, etc., but I'm ready to go. (laughs) One or two responses. So here's the the two points I want to make. And the first is this. Uh, the question is, who is this child that's born of a woman named Mary? Who is he? John's going to answer that question. And then the last thing that we'll look at is, uh, what has he accomplished for those who have believed in his name? What does that look like in your life? Because we're always having to say, okay, so these things are true. How is this bearing out in my life and my understanding of how I operate during the week and in my relationships with other people and how I deal with my money and what I do with whatever I do with my life? So the first thing to see that's pretty profound in our text is this. This baby is God. 2,000 years ago, the second person of the Trinity, the eternal Son of God, took upon himself a human nature. But what's quite clear from our text is that he's God. And where do we see that? Well, if you would, uh, look at this text again. In verses 1 and 2, it says... In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God, and He was in the beginning with God. And all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Now, if you read that text, it's really hard to scoot around what it's saying about this person. Over the years, I have 
shared the gospel with people. And one of the things that they really stumble at is, is how, how can this person be both God and man? And is not in some way uh, that uh, fairy tale, is that, that some kind of story? And uh, what I've discovered is I've argued with people about this or discussed uh, who Jesus Christ's person is. People tend to go one of two ways on this. They go kind of an intellectual route or they go down a biblical route. And, uh, and I, of course, I know it's Sunday morning, so, I mean, it's Christmas morning, right? So, but you've got to bear with me here on this. Uh, the, first, the first place people go is the, the kind of more the, the uh, intellectual route. And uh, it doesn't seem to be reasonable to them. And so people bring all the faculties of reason that God has given us as a great gift of His because God Himself is called the Logos here. He is called the Word. He is called what is reasonable. And to, to, to not think of God as rational at some level is to not understand who God is as a person. And so created in His image, we are given this ability to think and to reason. But when we take the gift and use it as a means to an end and not an end, uh, use it as an end in itself and not as a means to, en- to an end, then reason begins to play all kinds of questions with who this person is. And the problem with reason is that reason in itself cannot know all the facts. It cannot, not all, cannot know all things. It is limited by itself. And if we were able to come to Christ by reason, then the bottom line is that if we give a good argument, people come to Christ based on the argument, and it begins to limit who He is. He is glorious. He is the Almighty God, and reason cannot get us there. The second route that people go is they try to go based on what the Scriptures say. A lot of people say, well, you know, Jesus never actually says that He is the Son of God. And you know, that's true. He doesn't say that outright. But have, you, but have you ever read a good novel? A good story? It's not written like a government manual. So we'll turn to page uh, 28, section B, section 1. And there it says it. The only government manual that I ever read was my license book. And that was so I could get my license but I don't keep it by my bedside table. It's devotional reading. The Bible is this unfolding of who Christ is. To study the Gospels is to begin to peruse and see that it's very clearly pointing to this person, Jesus Christ, as a unique person. That He is the very Son of God. Well, our text is very clear about this. It teaches us that He is the creator of the universe. It begins by saying that in the beginning was the Word. It's a parallel to Genesis chapter 1 where God speaks and the created world comes into existence. But here John is telling us that what was from the beginning before the material world, before the material world existed was God, was the Word. And this Word was with God, 
And the Word was God. And through Him all things were made. John is quite clear about this person that we're to worship and that we're to adore. Why does John use this word? Why, why, why does he use the word word, the word logos uh, that's here? What is the significance of him being called the word and the, and the world coming into existence by, by the speaking of his word? Well, I heard somebody put it this way. You know, you can know a lot about someone by observing them, uh, by the clothes that they wear, uh, by how they... Um, the places that they go. Uh, I can, here in Athens, I can tell you who probably, probably lives in Boulevard. I can tell you who lives in Five Points. There are things that we can observe about people and uh, we get an idea of who they are. When I was, uh, when I was uh, in Russia recently, I was on the uh, subway and I had a, a babushka, a grandmother sitting in front of me. And, and during the whole ride... Uh, she kept looking at me with a scowl and she finally said, she started pointing her finger at me and she said, CIA. <laughs> and I said, what? And she said, CIA. And uh, of course, I guess I look like an American or Tom Cruise or <laughs> James Bond. So she was drawing conclusions about me. She was kind of right. I was an American. But I wasn't in the CIA, but if she had come over and sat next to me and I could speak to her, then she would know who I am. I could have said, hey, listen, I'm actually a minister. And I like borscht. You see, when it speaks of Jesus being the Word of God, let me tell you, there's a lot of things that you can know about Him. A lot of, a lot of people know lots of things about, about God, about the Trinity. Many people grow up in church and there's all, thing, all kinds of things that you uh, surmise about who God is. But it's not until He speaks that you see Him for who He is that He reveals Himself to you, not as a God or a Savior, but your God and your Savior. So when it says that Jesus is the Word, it means that you cannot know God without Christ. Here's how Jesus answers the question that was put forth by Philip. When Philip says... Lord, we, would, we want to know who the Father is. We, we, in, 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 in John chapter 14, Philip, uh, the Lord uh, answers Philip and he says this, Philip, do you not know, have I not been, been with you all this time, that he who has seen me has seen the Father? Now let me ask you, do you believe this baby that was born 2,000 years ago, do you believe that he is the Almighty? That he was the Son of God, who is the Word become flesh, who, according to our text, says that the very reason that you are here is because Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, created you. He made you in his image. And, friends, I've heard it put this way that if you're looking for a strong argument 
You'll never know who God is. You don't come to a strong argument. You come to a strong person. You come to a person to understand who he is. Is the reason that some of you are still in confusion and have not submitted your life to the glory of who he is is because you're observing him, but he's never spoken to you by his spirit. He's God. But our text tells us also that he's not only God, but he's human. Our text tells us in verse 14 that this word who was God and was with God became flesh and he dwelt among us. Now I heard it put this way recently and it kind of, uh, my mind's been wrapping around it. The radicalness of Christmas is that the word became soft. The word became human. Uh, It became vulnerable, killable. In fact, Peter tells us that on the cross is the very Son of God and the blood of God was shed for us. It's a mind bender. That we can go back 2,000 years ago and before 2,000 years ago, before Bethlehem and a baby in a sable, that the eternal Son of God was always and forever the eternal Son of God. But on behalf of his people, those who receive him, in space and time he takes upon himself a human nature and he becomes vulnerable and he becomes killable. Now, you children, I want you to listen to me and think about this for a moment. All great movies, but not only movies, but if you listen on the news, uh, somebody is uh, living their life, things are going well. They're walking down the street. And they take a wrong turn and they get into the wrong uh, neighborhood or the wrong alley. And then somebody jumps them. And they begin to scream, right? Because they're in danger. And the people that are up above, the lights go on. They hear the screams. Someone is calling and crying for help. But nobody comes. Why do people not come? Well, (laughs) you know, if it was you, you'd be going, wow, you know, I'm not sure if I'm hearing that because of the great risk to the person who would come. It could be danger to them physically. They could perhaps even die if they came in and they intervened. I often ask myself, what would I do in a situation like that? The meaning of Christmas is telling us that the Lord of heaven, almighty God, heard our cry. And he comes down. And it was no risk. It was a certainty. It was necessary that he would become vulnerable and breakable and killable for the purpose of being killed. 
Now I want you to think about this. It didn't take 10 minutes for him to do it. It didn't take 20 minutes for him to do it. He came into the world and he lived for 33 years. And part of him becoming our sacrifice that we hear so much about, and a lot of you, a lot of you maybe you've rejected this, you've heard this many times, the atonement, that he's taken your place. But have you ever considered that he also came to identify with us as human beings? That he experienced pain and suffering and sorrow that he knows what it's like to be misunderstood. He knows exactly what it's like to be abandoned. The eternal becomes vulnerable. He takes upon himself a human nature. And while he was here, he wasn't here for 30 minutes to go down and make a sacrifice. But to live at 1 year old, 3 years old, 8 years old, 10 years old, 28 years old, Every day, every moment of every day experiencing the bitter brokenness of this world. Hebrews puts it this way in chapter 2. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and frees those... Who, who all their lives, who were all their lives held in slavery by the fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and high priest in the service of God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of his people. And because he himself suffered when he was tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. There it is. There's the explanation of the necessity of the second Adam not only being fully God, but taking upon himself a human nature to know you, to know me. Some of you might say, yeah, I understand this. But I feel like he's abandoned me. I, I, I've tried to believe this. I, I, you know, I, I, I want to believe this. But I can find no comfort for, from this. This past week I got a 25-page letter from, uh, from a student who's struggling with the assurance of salvation. 25 pages knowing all the scriptures. But it all gets focused in on him and he's not looking to Christ. He understands these things. But he is telling me, but I am abandoned by God. I'm telling him, as I would tell you, maybe you feel this way, he, does, he himself was abandoned by his Father for our sakes. He has not abandoned you. Uh, he is there. So that's who he is. That's the first point. And, and that's pretty clear, right? Would y'all say the text is pretty clear that he's God and, he, and he's... And he's He's human. He's the Savior. He's the God-man. He's the second Adam. He is the one that we worship this day and what Christmas is all about. You cannot extract the person from the, the principles from the person. But secondly, I want you to see what he's accomplished for those of you who've received him. 
If you put your faith and trust in Christ. Notice what he says in verse 9. Listen. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him. Who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Now I want to look at these benefits here in in just a minute. But here's what I want you to understand. It was not enough for Christ to take him upon himself human nature, that God would become fully God and fully human. We have a great example of this in Mark chapter 8, where Jesus asked his disciples, who do men say that I am? And, uh, well, some say that you're Elijah, and some say you're a great prophet, but who do you say that I am? You remember what Peter said? You're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And Jesus says to Peter, Peter, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. Right? Y'all know that story. But then, just in the next passage, Jesus begins to say that the Son of Man must suffer. No risk here. Reality. He must be lifted up. And of course, Peter, who makes that confession, says, no, 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 that's not right. That's not correct. And Jesus goes from commending Peter to saying to Peter, get behind me, Satan. What is the point of the text? Well, here's the point of the text. Jesus is saying, Peter, your confession that I am the Son of God, my being the Son of God, my being on this earth, my showing you who the Father is, is not enough. Somebody has to pay. I don't tell you, when you, get, when you get in a disagreement with somebody, there's a rift that's there, and there's a gap that's there, and something has to bring that gap together. We know that. If you've been lied to, or if you've lied to someone, or you've broken somebody's heart, you've said something behind somebody's back, or whatever it may be, there, there must be some atonement. There must be some bridging of the gap. And Christ has come, God in the flesh... Because he loves us and he has bridged that gap through taking that penalty upon himself. I know you've heard this, but the gap needs to be bridged. And it's right here in our text. The Bible is all about this. And there are benefits that come from that to those who receive him. But let me say this. There are those of you who will not. And there are those of you who have not. It's not because you're bad people. It's not because you're worse people than Christian people. But the fact is, our text tells us this. In verse 9 it says, first off, he comes to, to the world. He comes into the world. And what does it say to the world, does to the light? It doesn't comprehend it. What's he referring to? He, I think... Paul refers to this in Romans chapter 1. Well, what about the people who've never heard about Jesus Christ? What about those people? 
Okay, we're here at Redeemer. We get to hear the gospel. We live in America. But what about those people who've never heard the gospel? And what our text is telling us here is they know who God is. And you know who God is. If you're not a Christian, you're really down deep. You know who He is. But Romans 1 says that people sit on the truth. They suppress the truth. And they exchange the truth for a lie. And so the light comes, but they reject the light. But not only that, it says that the light has come to His own people. To Jews. And what is the response? It says He came to His own and His own uh, received him not. Friends, I'll tell you, you have heard me say this many, many times, but one of, the, one of the scariest places to be is near the truth. It's to be near radiation. If there's cancer and you're, and you're malignant and you're, you finally go, oh, I'm malignant. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm terminal. And he goes, well, no, 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 no. You're not terminal. But if you come in here and you get radiation, we can kill that cancer. And so you're in there and you're getting uh, radiation treatment. But the nurse is not standing next to the radiation. She'll die. And what is really sad is, is how the gospel comes. And it comes to people, the covenant people of God, and yet they don't respond. They don't receive this truth. And the end result is that's the worst place to be. He came to his own and his own received him not. Now why is that so? Why is it that people reject the light or or move from the light? Well, I don't know how else to say this other than many other places in the scripture. It is people are just completely spiritually dead. Right? Would you agree with that? If a person's dead, you flip the light on, they don't see it. They're dead. And and, and so what we have here in the gospel and what, what, what we see here is that the only way for those lights to go on is for God to come speak a word to us through Jesus Christ. He has to come and speak. Not by the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but by the grace of God. And you say, well, wait a minute. Hang on a second. How, how do I know if I'm dead? How do I know if I'm dead? Well, let me tell you, number one, you resist the very thought of that. Uh, you know, you go to church, and, and to a certain extent, you kind of bear with the sermon but you're not interested in the sermon. So what is the difference between somebody who's dead and somebody who's alive? Somebody who's alive is beginning to understand the, all the realities that are in Jesus Christ. And what are the realities? There's two things and then, and then we, we close. One is this. It tells us that he gives us a new birth. That you are born into a living hope. That you're born of God. You know, when I, one thing I learned doing ministry, especially when I was a campus minister at Mississippi State, is how students could give me the right answers. But when I started asking them what those answers meant, they didn't know. They didn't understand. And the reason they didn't understand is because they said, yes, Jesus Christ died. However, I need to be an ethical person. I need to live by certain standards. I need to surrender my life to Jesus. I need to give my life to Jesus. And the difference between a person who's a born-again person and a person who's living according to standards, according to rules, the difference is this. A person who lives by the standards, their compartments in their life, and they know they need to get better. They need to be a better Christian. Maybe they need to be more reformed in their thinking. But a person here, he says, that's born of God, 
The difference is not standards, but they're alive in the God. And everything begins to seep into their life, all these areas of their lives that are to be submitted to who He is and to His reign uh, in their life. So you're born of the Spirit, but also you're given family rights. He says you're born into the family of God. What does this mean? Well, a lot of people think that justification, being justified before God, is simply that you're forgiven, right? Justified by faith means you're forgiven by God. Justification, these legal terms, being brought into the family of God means more than that. It's much more full than that. Being justified before God is that you have all rights and privileges as being sons and daughters of God through adoption, through His calling you, through being brought into a relationship with Him so that God is no longer your judge, but He's your Father by giving you a new family and a new name. I saw this illustrated best yesterday, uh, I mean Thursday. We have a number of parents who have adopted children into our church, I mean into their families. And so a lot of the families around Athens get together uh, that have adopted. And they had a party here yesterday, I mean Thursday. And I didn't know they were there. I walk in on the party. And here were these parents who had adopted these children. Children from all different lands and all different places. But children who nonetheless are now in that family with all the benefits of that family who have a new name, they have a new life and I think about what those children would be like, special needs children, if they had been left in the orphanage. Here's what Christ has done. This is what Christmas is about. Through Jesus Christ, we're justified before God, we're adopted into His family and we have every right and privilege of being sons and daughters of God. Now let me close by asking you this. What does a text like this do to you? Does it begin to, to again, once again, stir the coals to cause you to understand the greatness of what God has done for you in Jesus Christ? To say, Lord, you know what? I want to submit my life to you. I want to, I want to come to the Lord's table and hear the words of forgiveness, the words of assurance, and walk out that door. Or do you bristle? Or do you go, well, that's nice, but I just don't know really uh, if I believe that. Do you squirm? You say the heart that's undivided is a heart that's given over. A heart that's divided is a heart that's going after other things. If you leave this morning and you're depressed or you leave discouraged, it is not because God doesn't offer you all the benefits that are in Jesus Christ. For our text tells us that those who receive him, he gives life and light and an inheritance that will never fade. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful for your word. We're grateful that one day we'll touch the word made flesh. In the meantime, Lord, you've given us your spirit so that we might hear 
and receive who he is and what he has done. So, Father, we pray uh, this Christmas morning that we might once again be caught up with who Jesus Christ is and what he's done for us. And now, Lord, as we come to receive communion, uh, to know the fellowship that we have together because of what he's accomplished and what he's done. So, Lord, would you bless our time as we come to commune together to worship you, to adore you for all the benefits that we have through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And we ask it in your name. Amen.